Do you remember a few years back uh, the book called Heaven is for Real? It was about a little boy who had a, a burst appendix and he nearly died. He claimed to have gone to heaven and met Jesus, John the Baptist, his sister, and Samson, among others. Then he came back to this world and he told his family about his experiences. The result was a 163-page best-selling book. It sold well in Christian bookstores and at Barnes & Noble and lots of other bookstores, too. One store manager told the New York Times that it was, quote, like an Oprah book, but a little more religious or spiritual, close quote. Well, we all want to know what happens after death, don't we? I think sometimes our culture does all it can to uh, put off discussion, discussion of death and, and thinking about death, but we really ought to think about it. Whether the book was like an Oprah book or whether or not you think it should have been sold in the nonfiction section, there's no doubt that it sold well. And the boy is now sticking to a story 10 years later, uh, while even others have admitted they fabricated their own stories about life after death. My question for you this morning is, do we need to have this kind of eyewitness account to know that heaven is for real? And what about hell? Well, today we're looking at Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. Go ahead and turn there. It's on page 876 of the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. And let me just go ahead and encourage you, if you don't have a Bible of your own, to just take that one that you're reading from today. Uh, it's our gift to you. We would love for you to have it, to, to make use of it. Um, it's, it's really a gift, and we would be pleased for you to do that. As you're turning there, let me give you a sense of where Luke fits in the Bible, and where in Luke we're jumping into as well. Luke is one of four Gospels, that is, accounts of the, the birth, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the long-promised Messiah. Each gospel recounts the same events, more or less, uh, during the lifetime of Jesus, around 2,000 years ago. Luke, the author of, of the gospel we're looking at today, was a doctor by training, and he was a Gentile, or a non-Jew. He wrote uh, also the book of Acts. Uh, he wrote them both to Theophilus, who was likely a, a funder or a benefactor of his work. Luke undertakes to write, he calls it, quote, an orderly account, close quote, of the events of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke and then in the early church for the book of Acts. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. His coming was first mentioned back in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 3.15. And Messiah is just another term for Savior. We've already been singing about that this morning, haven't we? The world needs a Savior because our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the Garden of Eden. And since then, we've all sinned, ratifying the choice of our ancestors to follow our own desires and to rule our own lives, rather than listen to God's commands and love and follow Him. That means that after death, we'd be separated from God's grace for all eternity. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation describes God's activity in history to redeem a people and to bring forth a Messiah to save all of those who would repent of their sins and believe in Him. These redeemed people would ultimately be with Him in heaven. Now each of the four Gospels has different human authors, and they each take slightly different approaches to recounting uh, the events of Jesus' lifetime. So Luke, for example, wrote with more detail surrounding Jesus' birth, so you've probably heard it read around Christmas time, for example. Uh, also about His childhood. Uh, he spends most of his words in his Gospel, however, on uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, that's chapters 4 to 9, and then his journey to Jerusalem, chapters 9 to 19, and then he also writes later about Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, 19 to 21, and then the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the last three chapters. And, of course, the resurrection as well. 
So we're going to be jumping right into Luke 16, right in the middle of Jesus speaking parables on the way to Jerusalem, where he's going to die on the cross. Now, a parable is just a short allegorical story that teaches a lesson, often spiritual in nature. Uh, Jesus is kind of famous for telling these, as you might know. Interestingly, the parable we're going to look at today is, one, is the only one that Jesus tells that names a character, and that's Lazarus. But the main character of the parable is the rich man, and he's not named at all. So we're going to study this story in three parts. One, callous riches. Two, catastrophic reversal. And three, calling for return. So we're going to look at callous riches first. We're going to read Luke uh, chapter 16, verses 19 to 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. The first man we meet here in our story is a rich man. A very rich man. We're not talking here just about a one percenter, okay? We're talking about a point oh one percenter, maybe. It says here he was clothed in purple and fine linen. These are the materials of the uber-rich of his day. Uh, the, um, and he wore them every day, the best clothes. And those familiar with the biblical uh, times know that purple was the color of royalty. Uh, to have these fine linens required many hours of skilled labor for the craftsmen. And the robe would have to be dyed with a purple that came from only a certain shellfish. It was very precious and very expensive. You might recall that Lydia in the, books of, in the book of Acts was called a seller of purple. This is a luxury good we're talking about here. And the text says, and the NSB translates uh, this faithfully when it says he was dressed habitually in purple and fine linen. It wasn't just that he dressed up now and then. Uh, in modern times, think about a guy who maybe wears a, a tailored Armani suit every day. Or a woman who dons an Oscar de la Renta dress every day. This was somebody who was living life to its highest. Not only did he have the finest clothes, he also, quote, ate sumptuously every day. More than that, he feasted every day. This is a man who had lavish parties with the best food. Think about the prodigal son's return uh, when the father had a feast, when the son came back. He slaughtered the fattened calf. The same word used here, what this man did every day was what happened with the prodigal son and his father. That was the feast that they had. So maybe think about uh, Thanksgiving. Imagine how you eat then. Imagine eating like that every day, probably with your own chef to make, make things just like you want it. And what often comes with the best food and clothes? Well, a big house, of course. This man had such a huge house that it had its own gate. Uh, we see that in verse 20. In fact, the same term used for the gate for this man's house is what it would have used for a gate for an entire city. Same word, same idea. We're talking about a big gate and a big house. The man's house was, was enormous. You get the picture. This guy is loaded, and he liked to enjoy what some call the finer things in life. So who do we meet next? Next, we have a man named Lazarus. Ironically, at first glance, and to those who will only see the here and now, his name means God had helped. Let's compare him to the rich man. The rich man had fine linen and a purple robe. Lazarus is covered with sores. We aren't told uh, what kind of clothes he's wearing. Needless to say, they, they wouldn't be the latest fashion. 
They'd probably be scratchy rags that irritated his sores. I'm sure the rich man's fine linen would have felt much better on his sores. Instead of people craning their necks to get a view of royal purple robes, those who saw Lazarus probably had to avert their gaze to stop from getting sick. He had no beauty or majesty to attract anyone to him. The rich, the rich man feasted sumptuously. Lazarus, he desired to be fed with what fell from the table. Not just desired, he longed for it. The word really connotates that longing. He was so desperate for food that he longingly just wanted a crumb, just a few crumbs. Notice it did not say that he was fed by the crumbs from the table, only that he wanted to be fed that way. Back in those days, it was common during feasting for guests uh, to use uh, some of the bread, usually the more stale bread, as kind of napkins to, to clean your hands off and clean your face potentially, and then the crumbs would kind of fall to the floor. And then sometimes dogs would come afterward and kind of as the cleanup crew and they would eat those crumbs. And that's what Lazarus was hoping he would have the ability to do. Some of you might remember the uh, Gentile woman who alluded to this when she spoke to Jesus in Matthew 15. She wanted Jesus to heal her daughter, but Jesus said he was coming just for the Jews. Gentiles were often called dogs, and she said this. She said, quote, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus remarked that she had great faith, and he healed her daughter. So here we have a man who wanted to be treated as a dog. He longed to be treated as a dog, just to have a few crumbs. Let that sink in a moment. This desperate man was treated worse than the rich man's dogs. The rich man had a huge house with gates. The poor man was consigned to beg out in the open at that gate. Our translation said that he is laid, but it's actually much closer to being kind of discarded like a piece of trash. It's literally he had been cast. You know, maybe someone was trying to take care of him, couldn't do it anymore, just put him there at the gate, hoping that this rich man would have the resources to take care of him. It also seems to indicate that Lazarus was paralyzed or immobile. Let's look at one final de more detail here. The dogs came and licked his sores. Now, what do we make of this? There's at least two ways to view this. You might think of nice, domesticated dogs of modern day, uh, but more likely these were, these were mangy dogs, mangy mutts. Listen to how John MacArthur describes them. These dogs are always presented in the Bible as scavengers, mongrels, sort of semi-wild, not domesticated, ugly. They roamed the cities. They roamed the periphery of the cities, eating the garbage. And when they came in, in these open courtyards where meals would be held, they would clean up the bread that had been thrown there. So here you have another indignity. You have these disgusting animals bothering Lazarus. Another way to look at it is that some of these wild brute animals who are licking the sores are at least showing some compassion on Lazarus instead of the rich man's complete indifference. Calvin takes that view. Either way, it's clear that Lazarus was, in the world's economy, the lowest form of existence. Well, the rich man and Lazarus both die in time. Look at verse 22. It says there that the rich man was buried. Doubtless his funeral was attended by all the most important people and the scores who had nourished at his table over time. Many, it seems likely, would have said nice things about such an upstanding man who had died. Lazarus did not get a burial, at least not one mentioned here. 
Perhaps his death was barely even noticed, maybe just by those who were charged with collecting him and putting him in a ditch somewhere. It seems highly unlikely that anything nice was said about him at any kind of funeral. But we do have a nice bit of foreshadowing here that he was attended to by angels. It isn't recorded here that the rich man did anything affirmatively wrong to Lazarus. We aren't told that he had Lazarus arrested or belittled him or, uh, you know, on the way in and out of his home. Instead, he seems rather to just have ignored him. This reminds me of another story Jesus told a few chapters earlier in Luke. I want you to go ahead and turn there to Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. It's on page 869 of your pew Bibles. I'm going to read starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you do likewise. The rich man in our story likely would have seen Lazarus countless times. We aren't told that he ever stopped to minister his needs even once. Instead, he was like the Levite and the priest in that other parable. He ignored him. Brothers and sisters, may we not ignore those in poverty among us. Instead of averting our eyes from those in need, let's reach out with help, material and spiritual. Our church has a benevolence fund to help meet physical needs. You can give money to it very easily. Just write it on the offering envelope to benevolence. This will enable the church to help more people in need. In your personal life, be ready to help others. Let me say here that it's not always the most helpful thing to give money to those who ask for it on the street. Uh, We can talk more about that later after the service if you want. You may be enabling a a substance abuse problem, for example. But if you feel compelled to give, you can give food and water, of course. Even better, try to find a suitable ministry that seeks to get to to know those who they're helping and helps on multiple levels. For many years, our church was supporting this kind of work with a a gospel-centered ministry, but sadly, that ministry seems to have lost its gospel focus. So pray that the elders would be able to find a good partner to help those in poverty in our area. And if you know of one, please come and talk to us. The scriptures say to do good to everyone, especially the household of faith. 
So let's look among our own church body for those who could use help and give generously. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians. He said, quote, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let's look to share with those in need. Well, we've looked at the callousness of riches. Now let's look at the second point, catastrophic reversal. Go ahead and turn back to to Luke 16. From the standpoint of the rich man, who's the main character of the story, what happens next is nothing short of catastrophe. So we're going to read verses 23 to 26. We're going to actually start in the last part of uh, verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Whoa. This would have shocked Jesus' hearers. This rich man clearly had God's favor, they would have thought. How else could he be so wealthy and enjoy such a, a blessed life? Remember, Jesus had just rebuked the Pharisees before beginning this story. He had told, uh, just told the parable of the dishonest manager, and he said flatly, quote, you cannot serve God and money. Uh, listen to the reaction. It's captured in, in Luke 16, 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Well, if they were laughing and making fun up to this point, now they're scandalized. This rich man was the type that they saw as the pillar of his community. Perhaps he was the type who would have had entertained the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders at his home. In that day, the Pharisees loved money and likely preached a bit of a health and wealth message. To them, the wealth of the rich man was at least some evidence that God was pleased with him. That's the way we think sometimes too, isn't it? We think that the rich must be doing something right and that God must be blessing their faithfulness. I think that viewpoint is common inside and outside the church. But it's wrong. Those who focus so much on what they can gain here in terms of money and power and fame, relationships, whatever it is, they've missed the whole point. We're not home yet. We shouldn't try as a top priority to be as comfortable as we can here and now. We should be in a pilgrim mode, remembering that we are headed for a promised land that is much, much better by far. Instead, in this verse, We see that when he died, the rich man was in Hades, or hell. The Gospel of Mark describes hell this way, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation describes hell as a place where, quote, they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, close quote. It's described as outer darkness in Matthew 22, 13. And it may surprise you if... if, uh, If you're new to church, that actually Jesus spoke a lot more about hell than anyone else, and he warned about hell even more than he told us about heaven. 
you get the point. Hell is to be avoided. It's not a place you want to go. One other thing, notice that the, the rich man does not dispute that he's where he belongs here. Listen to how John MacArthur describes what it must be like in hell. He says, quote, You get a fully active conscience so that the true wretchedness of who you are is completely dominant in your thinking. All that illusion about how good you are, all those illusions about your self-worth and your basic innate goodness, gone. There's a full realization of the sinner's wretchedness in hell. A fully informed, acutely aware, and sensitive conscience becomes the tormentor. The rich man doesn't say, how did I end up here? That question is never asked in hell. He doesn't say, did I really deserve this? He doesn't say, don't you think this is a little extreme? He doesn't say any of that. The text says that the rich man saw Abraham far off. The patriarch Abraham was the father of all who believe, we're told in Romans 4. It's no surprise to see him in heaven, and the rich man wouldn't have been surprised either. But who's at his side in the place of honor? None other than Lazarus. The rich man doubtless understood protocol. It was the guest of honor who's at the side of the host. What a reversal. The rich man is far off. Indeed, not even at the party. While Lazarus is at Abraham's side. Oh, how that must have been gut-wrenching for this rich man. The most important party for a man who loved them. And he wasn't there. He was separated by a great chasm. Meanwhile, a man he routinely ignored and effectively treated worse than dogs was there beside Abraham. What does the rich man do next? He makes a plea for mercy. Ironically, the man who ignored Lazarus' pleas is now asking for mercy himself. And apparently, he knows Lazarus' name. He does not ask to be with Abraham in paradise. Perhaps he knew that that wasn't possible. Instead, he asks Abraham to dispatch Lazarus on a mission of mercy. Send Lazarus, he asks. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Perhaps he thought Lazarus was an errand boy in heaven. He cannot compute now that instead the man who was cast down at his gate now has a mansion of his own. For Jesus said in John 14, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Lazarus has a mansion for all eternity. He who was covered in sores and licked by dogs is now supping with Abraham. The rich man wants just a tiny drop of water. Abraham just sent Lazarus to give me a tiny drop. We've gone from Lazarus longing for a crumb to the rich man begging for a drop. What is Abraham's reply? Look in verse 25. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Oh, how devastating a reply. Look at this in detail. It says that the rich man received, quote, your, unquote, good things. Lazarus just received bad things, not his bad things. The point here is that the rich man made a choice. He received all the things that were good in his own eyes. He bet all of his chips on the world. He seized the day. He held the lavish parties. He wore the best clothes. He had an awesome house and a proper burial. Now please don't misunderstand. It's not as though each person has a set amount of good things that he'll get, either in this life or the next. That's not what the point is here. 
If that were the case, why wouldn't we just follow the old adage that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush? And it's also not wrong to receive good things in the world. Often God blesses us with food, clothes, a place to live, work, family, friends, and many, many other good things. When received as good gifts from God, instead of replacements for God, these things are blessings that can be and should be enjoyed. The point is that the rich man chose the things of the world rather than God. He had gained the whole world, but he had lost his soul. The words of James 5, 5 ring true of him. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. He was like the people of Sodom described in Ezekiel 16, 49. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. He was like the rich fool who kept building bigger storehouses in Luke 12. Listen to what he said, the, the rich fool says in God's response. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Look at our parable this morning. The rich man is not condemned because of a specific, particularly heinous sin that he committed. We're not told, for example, that he made his money fleecing the poor. Instead, he's condemned by what he didn't do. A sin of omission. He failed to love God and love his neighbor as he ought. One might protest that he was just doing his thing. That's quite the point. He was doing his thing. He was not doing God's thing. You don't have to be wealthy to live a life ignoring God. And brothers and sisters, I think we should look at this text and see ourselves as the rich man. Many of us are rich by American 21st century standards. Five of the seven richest counties in America are in our area. But take any American in the 21st century. By first century standards, we pretty much all feast sumptuously and wear fine clothes. Some of us may even live in gated communities. By the world's standards, by historical standards, we are living wealthy lives. But that isn't true worldwide. About one billion people, about one out of every seven people in the world, live on a dollar a day or less. Nearly three billion people live on less than two dollars a day. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to consider doing what you can to help alleviate such mind-numbing poverty. Consider helping ministries that help those in destitution. I know multiple families in our church who sponsor a child through Compassion International, for example. In a concrete way, they're helping spiritually and physically someone made in God's image in need. Most, maybe all of us are rich. Does that mean that we're all destined for hell? Praise God, no. Listen to the words of Calvin, cautioning us against thinking that this is the fate of all the rich. Quote, As Augustine has judiciously observed, poor Lazarus was carried into the bosom of rich Abraham to inform us that riches do not shut against any man the gate of the kingdom of heaven, but it is open alike to all who have either made a sober use of riches or patiently endured the want of them. All that is meant is that the rich man who yielded to the allurements of the present life, abandoned himself entirely to earthly enjoyments, and despised God and his kingdom, now suffers the punishment of his own neglect. I want us to notice one more thing about the rich man. This man was a physical descendant of Abraham. He calls him father, and Abraham calls him child. But that was not enough to save him. Here's how the Bible puts it. 
To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Children, I want you to realize that just because your parents are Christian, that doesn't mean that you're automatically going to heaven. You, too, need to repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not going to be your heritage, it's not your genealogy that's going to save you. Neither your genealogy nor your wealth will save you or condemn you. So who then can be saved? Let's look at our third point, calling for return. Here we're going to read verses 27 through 31. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said to him, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. After hearing that nobody can cross the great chasm between heaven and hell, the rich man now takes up a new argument, a new plea. For the first time in the parable, he actually thinks of others albeit it's his own family. He says, please send Lazarus to my brothers to warn them. Again, he's trying to get Lazarus to do his work for him. Interestingly, this likely means that his brothers would have recognized Lazarus too. The rich man does not want his brothers to have the same fate as him. He thinks that they will repent if they just have someone come from the afterlife to warn them. Maybe he was just a little ahead of the heaven is for real grace. Well, what's Abraham's response? He says... They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This phrase, Moses and the prophets, is referring to Scripture, especially the Old Testament. Abraham is saying, they don't need a messenger from the dead. They must simply know and trust the Bible. Let's camp here for a bit to consider the gospel according to the Old Testament. Did you know that that Jesus said the Old Testament was about him? Remember the beginning of the sermon I said that Jesus was long-awaited? Well, several times Jesus said that Moses and the prophets, indeed the the whole Old Testament, was about him. In John 5, he says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus also explained to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, later recorded in Luke's Gospel. He says, quote, And beginning with Moses and and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Clearly, the Old Testament speaks repeatedly about the coming Messiah. Here's just one example from Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we have seen him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We don't need to just take Abraham's word that the scripture is sufficient for knowing the way of salvation. Christ himself said so. Also, let's take a moment and just test this rich man's hypothesis. The rich man says that if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So let's see, what was the reaction of people when this very thing happens? Jesus raised a different Lazarus from the dead, as recorded in John 11. After that, the chief priests and the Pharisees thought that Jesus had done many signs and that people might believe him. 
And then the Romans, quote, will come and take away both our place and our nation, close quote. They plotted after this to put Jesus to death. So much for just needing a messenger from the dead. The problem was not an evidence problem, it was a heart problem. Apropos of our earlier discussion of heaven is for real, notice that after Lazarus was raised, or after Paul raised a man who had uh, died, he was sitting on a windowsill and Paul was preaching long and late, a uh, man fell asleep, he fell and he died. And then Paul raised him from the dead. Uh, neither of their observations were recorded in Holy Scripture. We don't know anything about what they experienced or didn't experience during that time. All we have are a few glimpses here and there, and we have this parable. It's pretty clear from the context that when Luke recorded this parable, the last sentence had double meaning. It says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now here they're talking about Lazarus returning from the dead, but Luke's readers would have immediately thought of Jesus as I, and perhaps you did as well. The fact is, there is a great chasm after death, and it's fixed. We, who know how to be on the right side of that chasm, are charged with sharing that good news through the scriptures. We need not concern ourselves with stories about life after death experiences, but rather we must faithfully explain God's word. Romans 10, 17 puts it this way. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ being another uh, synonym for the scriptures. Here we are entrusted with the gospel and the scriptures to share with the living that they may repent. I know repentance is kind of an old-fashioned word, but look here at our story. Even the rich man knew that was what needed to happen. He says his brothers would repent, and that's what does need to happen, repentance and faith. The gospel is simply this. We have all, like the rich man, gone astray. We've lived life our own way, rejecting God's good rule over us. In biblical language, we've sinned. The penalty for unrepentant sinners is separation from God's grace and from God's good place in heaven. The penalty is death, more than physical death, but permanent torment in hell. But praise be to God who sent His Son from heaven to live the perfect life that we could not live. He perfectly obeyed God's commands. He did not love money. He loved people. And most supremely, He loved His Father in heaven. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross by dying in our place. In a way, the rich man got what he requested in this parable. God did indeed send a man from the dead, and the world has never been the same. God's plan first announced in Genesis came to fruition through Jesus Christ. He lived a life in some ways like Lazarus. He suffered. There was no majesty in him to behold. He lived a completely obedient life, never complained. And he lived a sacrificial death on the cross. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, making clear that God accepted his sacrifice on behalf of repenting sinners. He visited his disciples, further explaining the scriptures, and gave them the courage to tell others. A short time after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. He could come any time. We're not promised tomorrow. We could face him as our judge at death at any moment. Which of us can keep our heart beating or our brain functioning? None of us. While you have time, repent. Do not think it can wait. Do not gamble that you will know the hour of your own demise. Instead, repent while there's time. The scriptures say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe and be saved. 
Christians, share this message with your friends, your family, your neighbors, all those God puts in your path. The time is short, and the time for repentance is now. As we wrap up, I want you to think about this great reversal. We all love a good reversal story, right? Think about Trading Places or Back to the Future or any number of other movies. You can even pick a movie outside the 1980s if you must. We're interested in the high and the mighty being brought low. We like to see the underdog on top. top. We read this morning, uh, what we've read is far more than a story of just human reversal. It's a warning that our world's entire value system is messed up. We exalt the powerful and the rich and we look down on the poor who are also made in the image of God. We think about what people can do for us rather than what we can do and should do for them. We overlook others' needs. We put out of mind God's rightful rule. We ignore scripture. And we imagine that we're in charge of our own lives and our destiny. We must repent. We must reject this self-rule and submit ourselves to God's good rule. Friends, we do not need someone to come back from the dead to tell us what it's like. We need to read and believe God's word, which tells us that he, God the Son, came to earth lived a perfect life, died in the place of repenting sinners, and was raised again. We need to repent while there's time. We need to share while there's time. Today, Jesus can bridge the chasm between the hell we deserve and the eternity in heaven that we so desperately need. Let's pray together.